This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Women continue to be a very important part of the economy. Still, Harvard behavioral economist Iris Bonnet believes that so much more can be done. Her new book, What Works? Gender Equality by Design, looks at the needs out there to make the workplace a more level playing field. And Iris joins us on the show right now. Iris, welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Dan. Great to have you. Uh, how much better, though, is the workplace now compared to, let's see, you know, go back 20 years in your mind? It is better, although not that much better. How much, though, do you think is needed? So some organizations have made a lot of progress at the entry level. So certainly it is much better at the entry level in that we now have 50-50 splits uh, at the entry level in many consultancies, in many law firms, and in many different places uh, at universities. And so, yes, we've made a lot of progress there. We haven't really closed the gap in leadership, though. Well, and you talk, actually, it's on the inside of the book jacket about how the fact that gender equality in the workplace is not only a business imperative, but it's a moral imperative as well. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, no, absolutely. The One of the most impressive uh, research pieces, I think, that speak to this question of the moral imperative, in fact, comes out of the Wharton School by uh, Rob Jensen, who is a professor there. What he was trying to understand was gender side. What gender side means is the selective abortion and killing and neglect of girls mm -hmm. in many parts of the world. And so obviously, a hugely moral imp imperative, the UN now estimates that about 200 million women and girls are missing. And I tell the story because it actually has a happy ending. So what Rob was trying to understand, whether creating economic opportunities could affect the survival rates of these women and girls. And that's exactly what he found. So he went into India and worked with call centers. Mm -hmm. Um, call centers preferably moved into India in the 90s. And specifically what he did, he offered training programs to women to go and work in these call centers. And yes, the women would then go and work. But more importantly, what he was measuring was whether these increased opportunities affected how parents treated their daughters. And that's exactly what he found. So returns on investment, that's obviously a very business concept, but returns on investments matter even for the poorest of the poor, and can affect survival rates um, of women and girls. It's interesting. We were just uh, speaking with uh, uh, Sharon uh, Ritchie, who is the current COO of Axa Financial, and one of the initiatives they have tried to push forward is looking at the, the paths of women in terms of, because of the fact that women do live longer, uh, they are still making less, uh, they, you know, they need to be prepared financially in terms of retirement for a, a longer life afterwards. I think we, we take for granted at, at some point that this is obviously an issue within here, the United States, but we forget that a lot of these issues are multiplied 10, 20 times when you're talking about other countries around the world. No, I think that's exactly right. Uh, we've made a lot of progress in this country, certainly, and 
um, also created some interventions, in fact, that the rest of the world comes from. Let me give you one that has nothing to do with what we just described, but I do think will resonate with our listeners. American symphony orchestras introduced screens in the 70s because they felt that maybe they weren't completely objective in their evaluations of musicians. Right. And so they had them audition behind screens. And I have to say, to their surprise, it increased the likelihood that women musicians would advance the future rounds by 50%. In the 70s, we had about 5% female musicians in our major symphony orchestras. Now there are almost 40%. So the screen is a simple design intervention that started here in this country and that still has not spread to many other orchestras around the world. And that a lot is obviously the word bias will, you know, will will come into this discussion quite a bit over the next 20 minutes. And bias is, you know, it, it's it's a thing that you would like to see kind of eliminated. But it is so it's been so ingrained in in our people, our cultures, that I hope we're able to do something about it. I'm a little concerned that maybe we're not able to do enough about it going forward. Is, is that also a concern of you? That absolutely is a concern of mine, Dan. And you are right in suspecting that our minds are stubborn beasts. So (laughs) it is, in fact, hard to change mindsets. Um, Therefore, I am suggesting a somewhat different approach, which goes beyond diversity training, so beyond trying to fix kind of our minds and really fixing our organizations. I would imagine that that this type of philosophy and kind of playing off what you said uh, with uh, with the orchestras, that this is also a philosophy that that we should really realistically think about in a lot of our companies, maybe even all the way down to the HR departments, because you know if you're looking for the most qualified candidates, you know maybe the resumes need to have the names taken out of them to just go on what those people have accomplished. A number of companies, in fact, do this very same thing. And there's now software um, out there that a number of different tools, one is called uh, Unitive, another one is called the Gap Jumpers, a third one is called Applied, in case our listeners want to check any of those out. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of, of companies providing the kinds of tools that would allow companies to do this in a relatively simple and straightforward way and blind themselves to demographic characteristics or really anything else that they would like to blind themselves to, at least in el- initial rounds of evaluations. So if you kind of look at the workplace in general, what do you think are some of the the better ways to try and start to eliminate bias on a more frequent level within the workplace? Every good analysis starts with data. So, of course, I am biased, given given that I'm a scientist, but... um, I do think that's also very sound advice for any organization. So don't just throw money at the problem and, you know, run a diversity pro- pro- program or a leadership program or any, any you know, program. And that's some, someone actually saying that who is in the business of training people. Um, but don't just throw money at the problem, but try to understand what exactly is broken in big data is really going to revolutionize our HR department because we will be able to understand who in our company, for example, is more likely to still be here in a couple of years from now, mm-hmm. or including questions such as, 
how many interviewers do we need for the scores to converge? Do we actually need 10 different people to interview a person, or is three the optimal number? And again, data is going to inform companies uh, in terms of what they can do better. And it also plays an important role in understanding bias. So a number of companies, for example, have found something that is now called performance support bias. And what it means is that um, (laughs) it actually started started with um, uh, stockbrokers, interestingly enough. Okay. Um, And it's an interesting study because um, stockbrokerage, of all places, is an, an environment where you can measure performance relatively accurately. And uh, the fear was that women weren't performing as well as their male counterparts. And then when they actually looked and counted, they found that women started out with worse performing accounts. So women were given worse performing accounts to start with. And that, of course, then affected their performance. If they hadn't measured, they wouldn't have known. And so measurement really is the first place to look. We're talking with Iris Bonnet. Her, her book, What Works? Gender Equality by Design. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. You also talk uh, in the book about the importance of role models for women right now. Mm. You know, role models for anyone, really not just for okay. women. Uh, in fact, let me start with boys first. So uh, very important evidence has come out of the OECD last year showing that our 15-year-old boys now lack by about a year in reading and writing compared to our girls. And one of the reasons is the lack of male role models, of male teachers, in particular male teachers in English or in other uh, reading and writing related subjects. So I think role models do, not just I think, the evidence suggests to us that role models play across the board, but of course also for girls. So for example, one study has shown that when girls were given female role models to look at before giving a speech, they would give, objectively, would give a more powerful speech afterwards. We're talking with Iris Bonnet. The book is What Works? Gender Equality by Design. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. If we start to able to make some of these changes in terms of, of taking away some of the level of bias and, and, and more gender equality, higher levels of gender equality, the hope is, and, and I would think the belief is, is that this will have an effect, and I don't know if you can put a number on it at this point, on the growth of our country, of so many other countries across the globe right now. I don't think anyone can put a number on it, a precise number, but certainly economists have been trying to estimate what um, difference difference really makes and whether, for example, the diversity, increasing the diversity of our workforce in this country in the last 30 years has uh, impacted the growth of our economy. And that correlation is very, very strong and very substantial. Uh, it used to be the case that, for example, in the 60s, uh, more than 90% of all doctors or lawyers were white men. Mm-hmm. Now that fraction is closer to 60%. Um, and that doesn't mean that white men don't have jobs anymore, but our economy has grown so substantially and our talent pool has grown so substantially that people now have more choice, more options to go to the doctor or the lawyer of their choice and maybe somebody who understands them better or looks more like them. So I think uh, there's no evidence suggesting that increasing the talent pool or benefiting from 100% of the talent pool rather than just 50% is a bad thing. 
we are at an interesting intersection right now because you have so much that goes on in the economies of businesses around the United States and around the globe that relies on data. Mm-hmm. And data is such a powerful thing right now. How do you think that the importance of data is going to is going to affect the issue of gender equality going forward? I think data has always played an important role and do allow us to make more objective decisions rather than trust our gut instinct, which sadly leads us astray. Um, but I think what has changed now is uh, what we do with the data. I mean, yes, we collect more and yes, we have better instruments instruments to collect more. Yeah. But in particular, we have you know, tools such as machine learning, which allow us to analyze data um, in a way that we haven't been able uh, to do before. And so, yes, they will absolutely change uh, the playing field as well, because we will not have to trust our gut instincts anymore when we evaluate somebody, but can, in fact, use uh, work sample tests for example, and use more objective measures and have data to analyze them. Do you think that 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 level playing field is a realistic possibility at some point down the road? And I'll just say it because the data on, on the gender pay gap continues to be out there. So do you think that that is a possibility down the road? I am an optimist. Um, so, yes, I actually do believe it is a possibility out there. But what we have to do is we have to... Uh, instead of just um, dressing the wound or hiding the wound, we really have to uh, get at the source of what's going on. And again, data is going to be informative to understand what's broken in our organizations. Is it at the hiring level? Is, is it at the promotion level, for example, where we find lots of bias? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, intervene. We're joined by Iris Bonnet. Her book is What Works? Gender Equality by Design. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We talked about it briefly, but one of the chapters in your book really does, it goes into de-biasing the mind. Mm. And I wanted you to go through that and, and what, what you think the possibilities are there uh, going forward. So that may be the place in the book where I'm least optimistic, in fact. Okay. Um, so a first important insight um, that I wasn't really aware of, I have to say before I started writing the book, was how little we know about whether any of our diversity trainings do any good or not. So in the U.S., estimates are that we spend about $8 billion a year yeah. on diversity training programs. But none of those, and I think basically I can say none of those, are evaluated in any rigorous fashion. And when I say rigorous fashion, I do kind of mean a real experiment where we have a treatment group which gets treatment or the diversity program and a control group which doesn't get the treatment and where we can actually see what difference difference makes. So what I did for that chapter is I cast the net really broadly and tried to see where else have diversity training programs been conducted and could we learn anything from them. Mm-hmm. And so there have, in fact, been some interesting studies in schools with diversity training programs, and they're interesting for me in particular as a scientist because they have been done in a controlled fashion with an experimental design. And sadly enough, they did not find that the kids who have undergone the program, participate in the program, have afterwards become more inclusive, more willing to play with kids that look different from themselves. And that, sadly, so other evidence I looked at are reconciliation training programs in post-conflict countries. So again, casting the net really widely to give de-biasing training a chance. 
um, but I haven't come up with um, anything that I could, could now point out works. But the other interesting thing is you talk about is the fact that, that we see bias in our, in our schools. And, and, you know, if we're seeing bias in our schools with our young people, it, it's hard for them to get away from it. So it almost seems like one of the focus areas early on needs to be the schools in trying to kind of root, root out that bias and try and get rid of it there and continue it up along the scale. That is absolutely right. Seeing is believing. Um, and that is one important message um, in my book that includes role models, but also includes, you know, who is with us in the classroom and the kinds of stories that we read, the kinds of heroes and heroines that we see in fairy tales, in movies. Um, therefore, you know, the new Star Wars uh, is such a breakthrough in many ways because it has these very counter-stereotypical uh, role models and leaders in it with Ray as the female leader. So, yes, it does start extremely early, and we have to uh, think very hard about what we communicate uh, about what's possible for our kids in schools. Because sadly enough, sometimes these, uh, this, these uh, information can become self-fulfilling prophecies. That's interesting. You bring up the, the, the Star Wars film, and, and it's, you know, there's a, a specific case that we know is going to be around for several years to come because we know how this, this film trilogy kind of plays out. No, that's right. That's right. You might also be aware of the fact, of the sad fact, which in the meantime has been rectified, that Monopoly created a Monopoly version of this particular Star Wars episode, yeah. but forgot to include the female protagonist. So oh, that geez. just shows how deep these biases run and that we don't naturally associate warriors with women. You also, and, and speaking of design, you actually use the word design in an acronym. Yeah. To kind of uh, kind of lay out this whole process, go into that a little bit. Yeah. So I um, I mean, design the D stands for data, and we've talked about the importance yep. of data collection before. E stands for experimentation, and again, something I've mentioned before, and I point that out in particular to businesses because businesses. I think often are actually too quick to just adopt a new fad or try something out and roll it out whole scale. And one of my big messages is for businesses also to be a bit more humble and pilot something. Just do A-B testing, not just in your bar uh, marketing departments, yeah. but also, for example, in HR. So experimentation is important just to see whether something works. And then finally, the sign, the design, the sign part of um, design is the signpost. So... The metaphor that I use in the book and that might also resonate with some of our listeners is that many of us have been in hotel rooms where we were given a room key card that turns the light on and off automatically when you mm. put it in and take it out again. Now, that turns out to be a super clever, very cheap design invention that makes it so much more likely that the light is off than any flyer that well-meaning hotel staff could leave in our bed saying, please turn off the light, please conserve energy, please reuse the towels. Um, so yes, so the room key card is a bit of a signpost. It makes it very easy for us or in our biased minds to do the right thing. And that, in many ways, maybe is the most important message of the book, that this is not about bad people doing bad things. This is about all of us falling prey to these biases because we all see the world the way it is. We don't see many male kindergarten teachers and we don't see many female CEOs and therefore we don't naturally associate these jobs with men or women respectively. It, but it does feel like, though, that, that there obviously has been a shift 
uh, change in terms of the number of, of women at the C-suite level over the last decade. And, and you just get the sense that the way our culture is kind of moving uh, and the way millennials are, are having more and more of effect, that we will see more women executives going on over the next 10 years, correct? That is certainly the expectation. I mean, the question is how fast the needle will move. And I think projections, recent projections that I've seen um, by the World Economic Forum suggest that this is going to kind of be more of a 100-year time frame until we have actually achieved gender equality. So I don't think if we do anything, it will naturally happen. What do you see, though, as as the future in this area when you're talking about young girls? Because that's – we kind of alluded to – that's a very important part, part to this puzzle is that you have to start to make the influence with girls at a young age. No, that's right. And again, there is actually just this month in March um, a very ingenious design intervention going on, and that is the new SAT. So the SAT, for the first time, I think, in almost 100 years, is going to be gender debiased. And what that means is that uh, a fraction of the SAT is a multiple-choice questionnaire, which comes with five possible answers. And the old SAT had a point associated with getting an answer right and a quarter-point deduction for a wrong answer. What that means is that those of us more willing to take risk would be more willing to guess and those of us less willing to take risk or being risk-averse even are more likely to skip questions. And so, in fact, a doctoral student of mine, Katie Baldica Kaufman, who is now a professor, mm-hmm. uh, wrote her dissertation on this very topic and measured whether this affects performance of girls and boys on the SAT. And she found that, indeed, it was true that the girls were less willing to guess and more likely to skip questions. And controlling for how much they would have known, that costs them dearly on the SAT. So we locked out. Um, The college board decided to redesign the SAT, lots of different design elements. But one of them, in fact, is to take out the penalty from wrong answers to level the playing field for people independent of their willingness to take risk. Because after all, the test was not designed to measure risk-taking. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting book, Iris, and I greatly appreciate you spending some time with us today and kind of going through it. And, and people can find it uh, online and in bookstores. Uh, Iris, thank you very much for coming on. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.